Good morning, church. Welcome, everybody. Happy Sabbath. Uh, It's good to be up here again. It's uh, been a while. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Chuck Valley. Um, If you haven't seen me down here, it's because I'm usually hidden away upstairs. Uh, Down here today, but we have a bunch of really smart people up there, so we're in good hands today. Um, Before we get started, can we bow in prayer? Our Father God, you have called, and we are here. And Lord, we are wholly dependent upon you. So Lord, we pray that you will be here, and that you will give us the message that you want us to hear, and that you will bless our time here, and that you will be glorified in everything that happens here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to believe, but it's uh, going on my 20th year coming since I came to this church. When I first came to this church, I used to get up here and talk about how uh, the reason for coming to this church, and I came here because I was seeking God. I was on a mission to discover God. And I was brought up in a Christian home. I'd gone to Protestant churches my whole life. I had gone to a Protestant college, so I had a knowledge of the Bible, but there were things that I was taught that I just couldn't put together. It was like I was putting this puzzle together my whole life, and I was not able to make pieces fit. But I came, when I heard this, the message of this church, and I learned that some of the pieces that I was trying to put together, like the state of the dead and the immortality of the soul and the eternal burning of hell, I was very excited because I learned this could be solved. This puzzle could be put together. And so that's why I came to this church. And I, since I've been to this church, I've learned other pieces of the puzzle. I've learned about this, the uh, righteousness by faith. I've learned about the uh, prophecy and how it can be put together and understood, which is very exciting to me. The sanctuary message. Um, and this idea that well, I could make progress in this puzzle was exciting to me, and it's the main reason I came to this church. And, the, and interestingly, it seems like over the last 19 years, we've all been working on this puzzle together, and we've all been taking turns. We've had our elders and our pastors and our speakers and our congregation members up here, and they've been highlighting this piece of the puzzle and kind of spinning around, see where it fits. And... The more we put together this puzzle, the more we realize this is a lifelong project. This is an eternal project. Um, this is the picture of God that we're trying to solve here. And this will go on through all eternity. Um, today, what I want to offer, it's my turn, I'm up here, but what I want to offer isn't so much a piece of the puzzle as it is a technique in putting together the puzzle. When you're trying to solve a puzzle, often you will you know, take the four corner pieces first, then you'll find all the edge pieces and you'll try to line those up and try to see which side they fit on. And then you might start working on a, something you see within the picture. You might start sorting by colors. You might sort by shapes. Um, so sometimes we come across a difficult piece of the puzzle and, and sometimes we have to use all our techniques to, to make that piece fit in the puzzle. Today I want to offer a method that I use to evaluate a story in Scripture. Um, I want to introduce this idea, and then I want to try it out on two easy 
stories in the Bible. And then one more difficult piece of the puzzle. So the idea starts with uh, two principles that I've learned here at this church. Uh, One of the lessons I've learned while attending this church is that there is a mission behind the mission. God is in the process of building his own kingdom. That's the real kingdom. That's the real creation. Uh, We exist in this earth is, is a shadow of what the substance is that is to come. Uh, God created this world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. But God is in the process of building his kingdom and for, day, for God, a day is a thousand years. So I believe that God is, in this 6,000 years, building his kingdom. That's what we're looking for, his kingdom. And then there's going to be that millennial Sabbath with him where he goes over what he's done and we spend a thousand years in heaven with Jesus. So since we're just the type and every story in the Bible is not only telling us about this literal story but it's also telling us a story about God's kingdom to come and we see the lamb slain um, to cover Adam and Eve and we see there's a spiritual message there the sanctuary and its parts the deliverance from Egypt the stories of Daniel, everything that we read in the Bible is talking about this spiritual kingdom. And when Jesus was here on earth, he did the same thing, right? When Jesus cursed the fig tree, he wasn't so much concerned about the tree not producing figs. He was concerned about the Israel, which is the, the real tree, the antitype tree, planted in the garden of God's kingdom. That's what he was concerned about. Jesus didn't want to give the woman in the, in the real water at the well. He wanted to give her the living water came from his kingdom, his kingdom water. So Jesus often confused his disciples because he was talking about this reality, that he was talking about his kingdom, and they saw the reality as, as he was talking about the reality around them. He said, tear down the temple, and they thought, you know, I'll, I'm going to rebuild it in three days, and they didn't understand. So he always was communicating to them his principles and they just didn't understand it. And God is continually teaching us the spiritual truth in all the events of our earthly life. And I find that's not only true in the Bible stories, but I find that true in my own life and I'm always looking to see what the message that God has, what the spiritual message is that in the events that are happening to me. The second lesson I've learned is that God is using man as a center object lesson in this great controversy. We are the center stage for this great controversy. And just as the creation of this world culminated with the creation of man, God's creation of his kingdom in heaven culminates with the redemption of man, the final redemption of man at the great wedding feast where we become the bride of Christ. That's his mission. The purpose of man is to glorify God, we're told. Uh, We are his object lesson to this universe. Our purpose is to demonstrate God's glory or his character to the rest of the universe. And God's character is seen in the way he is able to overcome, the way he he relates to us, and ultimately his character is going to shine within us. So God created us for that purpose, to be an object lesson And he's teaching us the spiritual lessons in this physical world. And since that's true, 
God created us with a dual nature. We are both physical beings and we are created to be spiritual beings. And the Bible actually teaches that we exist at three levels of life. The Bible teaches us that we are body, mind, and spirit. Not only were we created body, mind, and spirit, but Jesus redeems us at all three of these levels. The Bible tells us that the substance of the life at the body level is the blood. And we read uh, in Leviticus 17, 14, it says, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus saved us by shedding his own blood. If we read in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, but Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not of this world around us, this is a, his speaking about his kingdom, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So Jesus was our complete sacrifice, and the, and the blood he sheds, he redeems us at all three levels, at body, mind, and spirit. Um, but even in this life, God, his sacrifice heals us at the body, mind, and spirit levels. Um, in Isaiah 53, 5, he says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So we heal, our bodies heal, because Jesus was wounded. You know, when I was one years old, I broke my arm, and I'm so grateful to Jesus that I didn't have to live the next 56 years with a broken arm. Um, when I was between my seventh and eighth grade, uh, the summer before my eighth grade, I, I moved to Maine. And we were tucked away on a, on a Maine highway, but there was one road that we could access to kind of go and explore. And it was called Whaleback Mountain. And it was called Whaleback Mountain because it was in the, the profile was the shape of a whale. So you had a big hill and then a taper hill um, where it came down. And right about, I was out there exploring, and when I came up the hill, right about where the blowhole would be, um, there was this Doberman pincher that came running out of this house and chased me. And I was trying to pedal and get my feet out away from him, and I barely escaped. But I knew the only way I could get back was to go by him again. So I decided I would ride as fast as I could and try to get past him where it was going up the hill and then try to go down that hill and get, a, get by him. And it worked. I... I, just as I started going down the very steep part of the hill, he gave up chase. Um, and I actually don't remember a lot after that because I, I blanked it out, but I guess I got ejected from the bike as I went down that hill and rubbed my face up against the, the pavement because what ended up happening is I ended up taking my bike. I don't know, it was all mangled up. I don't know why I didn't just leave it, but I carried it home about a mile. And then as soon as I got into my driveway, my brother took one look at me and he saw the blood and everything on my face, and he, he started screaming to mommy, daddy, come help. And, uh, you know, they rushed me to the hospital, and I guess they had to take a couple toothbrushes to scrub all the gravel out of my face. And here I was going to a, a school a couple weeks later, first time, didn't know anybody, new kid in the block, and uh, I had a scabby face all bandaged up. I was, they knew who the new kid was at that school. And I'm so glad that Jesus allowed our bodies to heal. I've got some scars up here, but God 
heals because Jesus took the stripes for us. Um, this is true also at the, at the uh, mind level. So what is the equivalent of blood at the mind level? It seems to me that the equivalent level, the equivalent of the blood at the mind level is the conscience. We read in Titus 1.4, 115, I think I missed one. Um, 115, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. If we go back to the scripture reading and read the rest of it that we had just brought up on Hebrews 9, uh, picking it up at 13, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your your conscience from dead works to serve God. So Jesus is making a sacrifice to cleanse our conscience. Um, If we read in the Desire of Ages pages, Uh, 685, but now he seemed to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. Now he was numbered with our transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of all. So the guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. So Jesus bore our guilt so that we can not have to bear it, so that we can heal at the mind level. Have you ever done anything, something where you hurt somebody um, and maybe you, you instantly regretted it? I mean, I have. Uh, there's nothing worse than that feeling of guilt. It can overwhelm you. It can disable you. It does, for some people, disable them. Um, time heals these wounds, but only because Jesus, Jesus took the guilt on himself. So we, we heal at that mind level because Jesus took that guilt. Uh, before we moved to, to Maine, there was a uh, point in time when I lived in Wellfleet and on Long Pond Road, and we lived on the power lines out there. And to me and my brother, the power lines were our backyard. We just loved the power lines. We were always out in the power lines. And um, we learned that you could take a tennis ball, and if you doused it with lighter fluid, and you lit it on fire, you could actually play catch with the tennis ball. And it was really cool because it was a flaming ball going back and forth, and it made this really neat sound as it went through the air. It sounded like a lightsaber. Um, so we were out there one time. We went way down the power line so nobody could see us, and we were doing this. We were playing with this tennis ball, throwing it back, and we decided we wanted to really hear that noise, so we, we threw it further and further. And then I had a bad throw. I threw it in, and it went into the... the dry grass, tall grass that was in the power lines and it started a fire and so my brother and I we were out there trying to stomp it out but we realized that we weren't going to be able to put it out. This is, this is way beyond us. So we raced back home and as we were racing home I told my brother because we'd already been in trouble with the fire department. My father was on, my father was on the fire department and uh, we had used his radio to call in some some calls, and my, my uncle was the chief of the fire department, and he, and he didn't, it didn't matter that I was his nephew. He was not nice to me, so he didn't give me any breaks. So I made my bro- brother promise that he wouldn't tell, and that we would just say that the motorcycle came by, and he threw out a cigarette, and that caught it the fire. So we decided we'd say that, and for years and years, we kept that secret, and 
every once in a while it would come up where my, my parents would bring up that story. You remember the motorcycle went down and lit the fire? And I would always feel so guilty. And I feel better getting it off my chest now. But, um, but you know, and I'm, I'm cherry-picking a story here. There's a, things a lot, I've done a lot worse than that. And, and, um, but I'm just so grateful to Jesus that we, we can overcome this guilt that we've, what we've done because, because of him. Because he took this, the, the guilt all on himself. Um, so what about at the spirit level? What is the equivalent of blood at the spirit level? Um, it seems to me that at, at the spirit level, love, love is the essence of life. In the story, when we had the, uh, the rich young ruler that came to, um, came to Jesus and said, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And, the, and Jesus said to him, oh, well, it's written in the law. And he said, you know, all these things I've done since the beginning. I've done this my whole life. And Jesus puts a finger right on his problem, and he says, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. And Ellen White makes a comment on Christ's Objects Lessons, page 394, about this event. And she says, he wanted eternal life, but he would not receive into the soul that unselfish love which alone is life. So at the spirit level, and every time I hear eternal life, I notice in the Bible, it means the spiritual level life. Um, so at the spirit level, other-centered love is the substance of this life. And Jesus redeems at this level by taking our sin away. Uh, King James Version of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So sin is a fire extinguisher of love. And Jesus redeems us by, by becoming sin. He takes all the consequences of the sin upon himself. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of all we just read. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of, eternal, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how does this gift of eternal life through Jesus. How does he give us this gift? Um, we read in Romans 5, 5, and the hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. So Jesus redeems us at the spiritual level. We love because he first loved us and we forgive because he first forgave us. Um, so the, I know it took me a while to get here, but the point I'm trying to establish is that we can look at every story in the Bible, every puzzle piece, and we can break it down to, be, to see what is being said at each of those three levels of life. Uh, what is being said at the body level, what's being said at the mind level, and what's being said at the spiritual level. So I want to try this out. We're going to do this pretty quickly, but I want to try this out um, on, th on three different stories, two easy ones, and then one difficult one. Um, so we go to the beginning. This seems to be the theme for the day, but we go to the Garden of Eden. Um, and we know that in the garden, all the trees of the garden were good for food. Jesus had, uh, God had given Adam all the trees except for the one, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. But this, this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, seemed to offer more because all the, all the trees of the garden were good for food at the body level, but this offered 
something else. So when we read in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband and he ate. So this is a tree that's desirable to make one wise. It claimed to nourish at the mind level as well as at the body level. And of course we have the serpent that you were just talking about to you. Um, the serpents sitting in the tree. He's one of the most beautiful creatures of the earth, we're told. But he's still an animal, right? He still can't talk. He exists at the, the body level. But he's there and he's talking, and it's because Satan's inside him pretending to be this animal that has now eaten of this tree. He's regaling himself with the fruit, Ellen White says. And he's saying to her, look, I ate this fruit, and now I can speak. I'm smart. Imagine if you do it. You can be like God. You'll be as intelligent as God. So that was the temptation. And, and God had said to Adam and Eve that the day they ate of it, they would die. And so I want to ask, what level did they die at? Did they die at the body level that, that day? No. Did they die at the mind level that day? No. However, they did die at the spirit level because the essence of the spirit level is that other-centered love. And that love was extinguished because after they ate of this tree, the light that was clothing them went out and they no longer wanted to be in the presence of God. So they hid themselves from God. And when God confronted them, they turned on each other. They said, that woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I did eat it. And, she, and the woman says, you know, the, the serpent that you gave me, they, bl- they turn the blame back on God. And so they didn't die, you know, they died spiritually on that one day. But it's also interesting because it's also true, we said a spiritual day, a day for God is a thousand years. And no person has ever lived a thousand years. They lived close, but they didn't live past a thousand years. And so they died spirit at the spiritual level on an earthly day, but they died at an earthly level on a spiritual day. I just thought that was interesting. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is that when we break the story down and we look at it at those three different levels, uh, we get a different perspective. So we have a different perspective on this story. I'm not trying to make any other point. The um, second one I want to look at is uh, Jesus and his temptations. Uh, after Jesus was baptized, he was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, Satan came to Jesus with three temptations, we're told. Uh, we are told that Jesus was fasting those 40 days. And at the end of it, he was hungry. That's a temptation we all understand, right? Even our pet would understand that. Um, you're hungry, and this temptation is to turn the stone into bread. Food, Right? So you haven't eaten food for 40 days, you're hungry, you want food. So that's a body-level temptation. Uh, The second temptation, and depending on which um, version of the gospel you read, the orders are different in different gospels, but uh, the second temptation that we're going to use here is, uh, is the one on the high mountain where Satan brings Jesus up on the high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you bow down to me and worship me, I will give you everything. So we understand that temptation. Our pets wouldn't understand that temptation, but we understand that. That's to be the one on top of everything, to be at the highest pinnacle. Um, that is a mind-level temptation. 
Um, the last temptation is the pinnacle of the temple. So Satan takes Jesus up onto a very high pinnacle of the temple, and he says, throw yourself off. And there are angels. He quotes scripture. He says, he shall give you his, change, his charge over you, his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So the temptation is for Jesus to jump off or, or throw himself off this high space and let the angels save him. Um, I got to admit, most of, this, most of my life I didn't understand. I was confused by that temptation. I didn't get it. Um, it, it. I was never tempted to throw myself from a high pinnacle, you know. No, it, and, I, and I didn't get it. But um, now I see that this is a spiritual level temptation. Love divides, what is the desire of love, right? It wants to be embraced. It wants to have a return. And Jesus longed for his father's love. So this is a temptation to have that love. He, this is a way to force that love, force, G, force God to, right? That's the way I see it. Um, sometimes there's a piece of the puzzle that's very difficult. Um, one that when you look at the image of that picture, you say, how does that fit in the picture that I know. And sometimes a person will work on a puzzle. My wife loves to do this to me. Uh, we're working on a puzzle, and she'll come over, and she'll look at it for a while, try it out. She doesn't like it, throws it down, walks away. Um, sometimes it's just, you just, you don't see it. I'm, I'm done with it. Um, sometimes a person will take a piece of the puzzle, and they'll look at it and say, I don't want to solve this puzzle. That, that's ugly. I don't want that. Um, and they'll walk away from it. I have a friend who's um, a tennis buddy of mine that we've we gone grown close. Uh, sometimes I go over to his house and help him with some projects around his house, and he comes over mine. He helped me take my skylight off of my house. Um, and he's a very generous, very disciplined, very principled person, sticks to his principles. But sometimes he says some things that just shock me because he has this image of God. And he said something to me recently that made me realize he thinks God wants to kill him. So I, so that's my question today. Does God kill? Right? God gave us the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not kill, Deuteronomy 5.17. But later on in the same book, in Deuteronomy 32, we read, Now see I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. And there are many stories in the Bible where God intervenes to destroy the wicked, right? We have Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife, the sons of Aaron, the firstborn in Egypt were all wiped out. The Egyptian army was drowned. Uzzah, Ananias, Sapphira, um, just to name a few. But there's one big event, right? We're told that there could have been about six billion people alive when the floods came. And Genesis 6, 17 says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein there is breath from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. So this looks like a piece of the puzzle, like the state of the dead and, and eternal hell that I could throw out, right? You know, but this is, you can't throw this out. This is God speaking. Um, this is God himself. 
Now, our government has laws, right? They have commandments. They say you can't lie, you can't steal, you, you can't kill. Uh, but our government engages in misinformation. It demands tariffs and taxes. If you don't pay them, they'll take the money right straight out of your account. Our government has capital punishment. We send the soldiers out to war. We send bunker-busting bombs, drones, and assassins to kill the enemies of state. So is God like our government? Does God make the laws but then not keep them himself? We are told, and I believe, that the Ten Commandments are just a direct reflection of God's character. They are who he is. The Bible says that God's ways are not like our ways. He sees things differently than we do. He has a different perspective on things. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways... I'm not there. Sorry. Oh, there it is. Oh. All right, I'm just going to read it. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, for your, for, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how is God looking at things? What's his perspective? So let's use our tool to break it down. All right? So at what level does God destroy life? At the body level? Yes, definitely. He destroys at the body level. At the mind level? Absolutely. Um, what about at the spirit level? Is there any place in the Bible where God kills at the spirit level? Does God ever extinguish love? Right? Absolutely not. God is love, right? God is so desperate that we have the ability to love that he gives us the only source of love in this entire universe, right? He gives us his son that we might have love. John 3.16, right? We might have eternal life, the gift of God. So God is all about life. God can never kill. For us to destroy at the mind level is murder. It is killing. But for God, it's not. For God, this is just sleep. He says, God can wake us up. He can undo what he has done at all those levels, at the two mind and, and body level. And he is going to undo it. The final judgment day, the end of the great week of time, who will be able to accuse God, right? To breaking his commandment. The Antiluvian people are all there, right? The people from Sodom and Gomorrah, they're all there. The Egyptian army is going to be there. Everybody that ever lived is going to be there. So who's going to accuse God? In the earlier verse in Deuteronomy 32, 39, it said that God, God had said, I kill and I make alive. And he always follows it up with, I make alive. Everyone that God killed at the mind level, God's going to make alive again. And the way they went down to the grave, we're told. So, nobody is going to accuse God. So what about this second death? We're told that only those that have, are alive at the spirit level are going to be able to enter the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom where there's other-centered love at its only law, 
and at its very substance. So what about the second death? When God comes, he destroys the wicked with eternal fire, right? And there's going to be a second death. There's going to be an eternal fire that consumes the wicked, and there will be a final death, but it's not God that kills them. They're like the rich young ruler, right? They're the ones that said, we will not, we refuse that other-centered love that alone is life. God's going to be blameless. It'd be shown that God did everything possible for, to save their lives, to bring them to life. But love cannot be forced. It can only be offered. So I have one more point. I'm going to conclude in a minute here. Um, and the point is that the direction of death and the direction of death at the mind and the body level is the direction we have to go, is the direction of life. Um, John 6.63 said, it is the spirit that, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. And Romans 8.6 says, the mind of the flesh is death but the mind of the spirit is peace. So Adam and Eve had sought to elevate themselves at the body and the mind levels, but they brought death at the spirit level. And they brought this death to themselves and to all of us. But we must do the opposite. We must die at the body level. We must die at the mind level. And then we can be reborn at the spirit level. And then we can be part of the resurrection that we have in Jesus. We can have a mind like his and we can have a body like his. Um, and we will have his spirit within us. We have to die to this world, this kingdom, so that we can be part of the real kingdom, the real kingdom that God is creating, this spiritual kingdom. So our closing hymn, crown me with many crowns.